Wendy, how are you? I'm good. Yourself, Jason? Doing fantastic. Very excited for our new guest today. I cannot wait. Who is he? Well, Sean Brock is the founding chef of the award-winning Huss Restaurants and the chef-owner of Audrey, opening next year in Nashville. His first book, Heritage, was the winner of the James Beard Award for Best American Cookbook and the IACP Julia Child First Book Award in 2015 and was called the Blue Ribbon Chef Cookbook of the Year by the New York Times. Sean won the James Beard Award for Best Chef Southeast in 2010 and was a finalist for Outstanding Chef in 2013, 2014, and 2015. His TV resume includes Chef's Table and The Mind of a Chef, for which he was nominated for an Emmy. Raised in rural Virginia, Brock is passionate about preserving and restoring heirloom ingredients. He lives in Nashville, Tennessee, and his new book, South, is already a New York Times bestseller. Sean, welcome to the Chef Pod. Where we are sowing the seeds for the future of food. Hello, Sean here. Hey, Sean, it's Jason Ennis here and Wendy Ma. How are you? Hi, Sean. Hey, y'all. Thanks for um, rescheduling. I appreciate it. Oh, we really appreciate you making the time, man. Oh, thanks for having me. Yeah, and you were in Toronto last week, and um, you were you were with us at George Brown College, uh, where you where you get where you did a, a fantastic interview, and uh, we just wanted to touch on a couple of those points that uh, that you did. So maybe do you want to start off telling us why you're uh, why you're um, touring around again? Well, thank you all for having me. I'm so impressed with that school, and I um, hope everybody there knows how lucky they are to be able to go there. It's um, not often you see a school that beautiful and well equipped and well organized. Well, we um, hope the students hear that. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, I am uh, in the middle of touring around my new book, South. So, South. Very awesome book. Um, we noticed that a uh, little bit of difference in that from from Heritage. Um, Heritage, you were you were sort of collecting seeds like these all all seeds from uh, from your American history, and in South, you've uh, you're now using them. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I'm glad that um, that uh, it comes across that way because that's exactly what happened, and that's that's a great way to. Uh, to, to look at the two different books differently. The first book was, was this overwhelming um, hope, like, wow, we have so much work to do and there's so much out there and we're so excited to be able to taste these things again and start to really taste these recipes the way they were when they were uh, created. And so now, you know, fast forward five years, we have a lot of those ingredients in our hands and we've had the opportunity to cook them and taste them. And they are extraordinary. They are just absolutely extraordinary. And now this book and just my cooking in general, moving forward, um, feeling a little bit better about knowing that these, these plant varietals and animal breeds, can be repatriated. Um, now we're asking the question, what is possible and what is the future? It's a very deep way to look at it. Um, I know this must sound a lot like, you know, choosing your favorite kid, but do you have a, do you have a, a particular seed or animal varietal that you're just kind of like, wow, this is amazing. It really stands out for you. Yes. I, um, so I grew up in uh, the Southern part of Appalachia. This just beautiful, beautiful rural area of Virginia. And I've spent the last 12 to 15 years focusing on and living in the low country 
moved there right out of high school. And now my energy is focused towards Appalachia. And, and I'll do that for the rest of my life. And the thing that I am hell-bent on right now is reviving these um, really neat varietals of green beans. And I think we have the idea of what a green bean is all wrong in America. Uh, we don't let them get big enough. We don't pick them at full maturity. And we haven't gone down the rabbit hole the way we have with tomatoes and apples and squash and um, you know rice in the low country. We haven't begun to explore and to taste through the, the thousands of varieties that exist. I mean, I know collectors that have seven, 800 varietals of a green bean. <laughs> I mean, that is just crazy to think about. And they all are different. They all behave differently. They all taste um, unique. And I've been growing my grandma's beans from Appalachia for a long time now. Well, maybe 12 years. And um, man, they're just, they're worth the effort. And I can't wait to see them in restaurants. I can't wait to see them in restaurants and I can't wait to see them uh, in, in home gardens. So for me, that's amazing because my biggest, I guess, fight to have uh, more conversations about food is about reconnecting, reconnecting people with where it comes from, the soil and all of the history behind it, which is really what you're pushing towards in your agenda. And you're saying it took five years for the fruition of South and a lot of the seeds that you were saving and testing and growing and regrowing to even be able to put on dishes today in hopes to reconnect more people to these 7,000 varieties of green beans. How do you, what are your hopes for this? You wanted to see, you want them to make appearances in restaurants all over the South, maybe all over America. But is the conversation also to get started with regular diners and people who don't farm, who don't seed save, to start asking and demanding for more of their terroir, their indigenous species that they have, of the land that they grew up in? Like, is that a part of your agenda as well? Yeah, there's a couple of reasons why that is important and to me. And one of those things is just the sheer deliciousness. Um, and the nutritional value, but these seeds, if you go through and you start looking through these collections, each seed is named after a person, a family, or a place. Um, and those hold stories, and those stories hold multiple generations of wisdom and lessons learned, mistakes made, realizations, they they start a conversation that has to continue. They start a conversation that reminds us where we're from and the hardships of the people who got us there. So you're sort of like personifying uh, all this food and helping that be the, I guess, the prepare to support and continue the conversation with diners who don't normally even have a relationship with food to begin with other than sustenance. And I was I was able to see that in play when we opened Husk in 2010. The conversation around the table 
was about these things because we limited ourselves and created this discipline to only use foods from the South so that we could, you know, hyper-focus the conversation on these plants and these animals and these ingredients that were so important to that place. And what I found was not only people are very, very curious and they want to know, but when someone would come in and they would know those ingredients and they would be at a table with someone who didn't know those ingredients, the amount of pride um, that we hold in food is, is very powerful. So really sort of celebratory, you're celebrating people, you're celebrating seed, you're celebrating heritage as, as is the name of one of your books. Um, it's fantastic what you're doing. You're, you're, you're a food hero is what we'd like to say in a course that we've got uh, up thank here. Thank you. You're very welcome. We, oh, okay. w- one of the things we love about your books, um, it, it's the instructional ideas that come out. So in Heritage, you gave instructions on how to set up a, a whiskey cocktail station or how to make a, a pit to cook a whole hog like a champion. And now in South, you've got your country ham um, roadmap. This differentiates you from so many other chefs. And what gives you the inspiration to to want to share this particular type of knowledge that isn't just, here's a recipe, here's how you cook it? Oh, I wish the whole book could be like that. And someday, <laughs> someday I'll, I'll write a book like that. Um, because these are like conversations. They're like conversations with me. And those conversations I learned from, and, and hopefully people can learn some things from. If you flip through the book, there's there's an entire section on cooking in your fireplace. Um, and that's not a recipe where you sit down and you go and measure ingredients. It's an idea, and it's it's me sharing all these things I've learned by obsessively wanting to understand how people used to cook in their homes. I mean, you've um, literally planted seeds in both Jason and I. We want to build our own outdoor grill. Did you design that outdoor grill that's in your book? Yeah, yeah, that's that's really awesome. But, I mean, I cook – I would. I, this is crazy to say. I probably cook more in my home fireplace than I do on that <laughs> crazy grill after all that time building. I don't know. It's just where I'm from. That was a thing. You know, like the, the, the hearth was the center of the house. And there was always food going, and there was this, this smell that comes along with it, and this warmth and this comfort. So that's you know that's one of my favorite parts of the book. And there's also a great section on how to take care of cast iron. And then there's a really neat uh, recipe where I talk about how I cook greens. And this is a great example of how recipes are passed down in the South through word of mouth. It's you're standing beside someone who's cooking something. And as they're cooking it, they're explaining every single thing that's going through their mind. And that's exactly what I did with this recipe for how I cook a pot of greens. So I just went to the farmer's market, got the best greens I could find. I went home and I put a tape recorder beside the stove. And as I cooked those greens, I just spoke every word that came into my head. Every decision I was making, every new thing I learned, um, and what was happening as I was cooking them, what I was thinking, why I was making the decisions I was making. And then we transcribed that and edited it down to, to that recipe. That's, that's like standing beside me in the kitchen and hanging out and, and picking my brain. And you can't get that from a recipe that has measurements. And we get that a lot. Like we always get that. Oh, you know, my grandmother, she won't write a recipe down. And, and uh, so, you know, we can't replicate it. And I, and I always say, well, go and cook with her then. Like go and stand yeah, next to her and practice this, it. This generation, the, 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 
the generation of the grandmothers right now never, you know, they, they don't write anything down. They take pride in not writing anything down. Take pride in not using recipes and cooking from touch and feel and 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 intuition. Now that's fantastic, but what happens when they pass away mm-hmm. and no one paid attention? All the generations before them who taught them all that knowledge, all that wisdom, all that care and nurturing, love and respect just vanishes. So we can't have that happen. We can't allow that to happen. So I urge everyone to cook with your grandmother as much as possible. And if you don't have your grandmother around, find a grandmother somewhere who will let you cook. (laughs) That's awesome. Um, I joked. I joked once. I was like, just put a Craigslist ad out, desperately seeking <laughs> Southern grandmothers. <laughs> you know, you probably get a lot of people who uh, who want who would want you to come to them. You know, like a j- grandmothers, grandfathers. You know, they want to share their information. A lot of times, we don't have a lot of time and respect for them as as much as we should. So after this, Which, I'm gonna I'm gonna call my my Omi and ask her to tell me about some recipes. <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah, I've started a project called Before It's Too Late, and it's exactly that. It's me going around with a tape recorder and just trying to listen as much as possible and document that and study it. So your new restaurant is named Audrey, which is the namesake of your grandmother. Is that what the environment is going to be like in this kitchen as well? Are you going to become Papa Sean Brock instead of Chef Sean Brock to your cook? Oh my goodness. What a dream come true. That would be. (laughs) I mean, it's so funny. Ever since I was a little kid, I just wanted to be a grandpa. And it's just like, I, I, looked up to my grandparents so much. I had so much respect for them because I knew the hard work that they'd gone through and, and I knew how um, how generous they were and just how wonderful they were. And that, that comes with that comes with age. Um, so yeah, if, if I'm going to be the, yeah, if I'm going to be grandpa, grandpa Brock, that's, that's fine with me. <laughs> now, now, Sean, I understand you're a new father. Congratulations. Thank you. Eight month old Leo is keeping me um, just beaming with happiness. Awesome. Are you getting any sleep? <laughs> you know, um, I'm doing pretty good. I can't speak for my wife, Adi. She um, she's she just has that motherly instinct where every peep that he makes, she's awake. <laughs> <laughs> that is what my sister says. That you will start hearing the most tiniest smallest voices and every kind of reaction will be something that you'll gutturally respond to Uh, i know i'm so guilty i'm such a deep sleeper (laughs) (laughs) so at eight months i mean that is actually when they start or have already begun eating solids are you really big proponent also in creating the food for your child the similar way that you would be creating food at restaurants concept obviously very basic but do you get as excited in those recipe developments so my entire life I've I've just romanticized this first tasting menu experience of multiple spoons with purees on them for my <laughs> baby. <laughs> you know, and like having each spoon be a very important ingredient that tells a very important story. And so when it came time to um feed Leo his his first solids. I thought very carefully about what I wanted his first thing to be that I cooked for him. Um, and I had found um, this candy roaster Cherokee squash that was part of a seed saving project 
and I cooked it very, very carefully in this, this, um, this beautiful cast iron pot with um, nothing added, just cooking it in its own juices. I, I bought a very specific um, screen mesh screen to push it through. I, I put it in this really amazing blender and I got it as smooth as the smoothest puree I've ever made in my entire life. <laughs> the most care I've ever put into cooking anything. And he wanted nothing to do with it. <laughs> <laughs> I was waiting he for wanted nothing to do with it. And that's like, I, I just, that's humility at its finest. Like I just, Dude, I did not expect that. I, and I, I don't think I've ever felt that emotion before. <laughs> I've got two kids, 14 and six. We live on a farm. My wife's a seed saver, an organic heirloom open pollinated farmer. And there's some times when our kids are like, nope, <laughs> we're, oh, not, we're not, we're not great. eating that. We're like, are you kidding me? Like we just spent six hours making this for you. So I know. get My ready for it. A... Leo, do you know how much people pay your dad to make purees like that? <laughs> you should have filmed that and let's shown it to him later on. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Sean, in, uh, in your talk on, on Wednesday night, you, you use this word that I've not heard you use before, vibrancy. You're talking about vibrancy in your ingredients. Do you want to go down that path a little bit? Tell us about vibrancy. I would say, man, I'm so glad you picked that up because that is the number one inspiration for the new restaurant. And that's the, the, the word that's, always ringing through my head because when I grew up eating out of the garden and, and you'll relate to this, it's a, it's a feeling when you eat something that's that fresh and grown with that much care and good soil and in the sunshine. And I mean, it's a, it's a very particular feeling of it's, it's hard. It's almost hard to describe unless you've experienced it. And so in my cooking, I've always chased that, um, especially when I've, started my first garden back in 2007, I'd been reminded of that, eating food out of the ground, like, holy cow, this is, I have to be able to share this with the guests. So, you know, I've played with a million different concepts of, you know, getting that to the table, but I think now it's time to see it as the overarching theme of my, my cooking and of my restaurant. And that's to do everything we can to capture the most vibrancy of each ingredient. And we obsess over all the things that would take vibrancy away. And I think every time you touch it with your hands, you take vibrancy away. And so when we're cooking, we'll actually count how many times our hands touch the ingredient. I... Um, and, and so we'll be developing a recipe and someone will be like, oh, but chef, that's 10 touches. <laughs> how can we make a seven? You know, and, and I really so, like that. That's the approach you guys are um, integrating into your kitchen because, I mean, we talk about this with what's wrong with the food system nowadays and how things are ultra processed and we're going further and further away from the whole food. And you're taking an extra step that even how much a chef touches it can be further and further away from the true element that nature kind of wanted us to taste and see. Yeah, Mother Nature already did all the work, mm -hmm. you know. The more we touch it, the more we mess it up. Um, and the first time I realized that, um, I was I was in Japan, and that's just the way the food culture is there. It's everything is only um, processed or prepped right before it's eaten. 
And so a lot of the dishes we cook are like that. We say to ourselves, what can we do all the minute now? It's not like, what can we prep ahead of time? So if you look at our stations, there's no prep. It's just raw ingredients. And so we, we know that we only have a certain amount of time at when the order comes in until it goes to the table. And that's how we create the recipes and the dishes. It's like, okay, if we've got 25 minutes, what can we take this raw ingredient and do, do with it for, in that amount of time? It's so forward thinking, but, but yes, yet such a testament to the, to the past. Sure is. Um, I love how you said, and I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna quote you here. You said, "I love to suck at something, and I love learning." The the <laughs> way I, I I I have so much respect for that because as young with with young chefs that we're teaching them in the kitchen, we try and say to them, "Make mistakes, make as many mistakes as you can, own your mistakes, and learn for them." So to hear you say, "I love to suck at something," I want to hear a little bit more about that. Yeah. So I think. Once I realized the um, just the when when I'm when I say I don't know, I'm really proud to say that. I'm proud to admit that I don't know something because I spent a lot of my life thinking that I always had to know the answer, especially because I've been the chef of a kitchen since I was 22, and that's just you know not not only is that no way to live. But that's not how learning occurs, and that's not how connection with other people occurs. When the more I say I don't know, the more vulnerable I become, and the more people I attract, and the more I learn, the more people I'm around. And when I wake up every day and I'm chasing something that I know nothing about, or I fail over and over again at something, I don't know why, but it just makes me feel like whole and great. And like, I really just, um, I feel like I'm, I'm taking advantage of the day because I believe that the greatest gifts are neatly packaged in suffering. <laughs> <You know? laughs> They're neatly packaged in, in, in some sort of pain, really. I mean, you have to, you have to realize that we're hardwired to constantly reach for pleasure, pleasure and run from pain. And so I find all the greatest gifts and lessons and rewards in, in pain now. So I, uh, you used the word vulnerable and I was thinking really you're the leader of so many of these kitchens and I mean, many aspiring cooks around the world. And when you say that you're vulnerable, they come to you and they're more willing to come ask you questions and being this leader, you're going to be creating a culture in your kitchens where <laughs> many cooks will start becoming more vulnerable. Um, this is going to change the well-being in the culinary industry if this actually picks up. Do you imagine more and more chefs opening up to the possibility of admitting their faults and knowing how to say sorry and knowing how to have conversations while creating food? This is huge. How do you think you're going to lead? How, how do you think this is going to go? Well, I can speak from experience. After... I got out of 45 days of treatment at the Meadows in Arizona. I'd never even, I, I didn't even know how to spell vulnerability. <laughs> I didn't know anything about it. I actually had to look it up and read about it in, in the library. Wow. Um, and to, to truly try and understand what this word, because it does not exist in the kitchen. Yeah. And I've really lived in the kitchen. 
And once I realized the strength and vulnerability and the power of vulnerability and going back into the kitchens, and I opened two restaurants right out of rehab, and I was able to teach those things before we even opened the door. I would give seminars on empathy and vulnerability and self-compassion and communication. And after every service, we would we would go through and we'd talk about two things that we did that we were proud of and two things that we did that day that we were ashamed of. <laughs> and and I would start, you know, and I would, I would say things like, you know, I actually made a mistake by allowing a plate to go out that I wasn't 100% proud of. Hmm. And when when the team starts to hear these things, they become more open to showing vulnerability. And what I found was, well, a much deeper connection, obviously. But what I found was when I would go into the kitchens, I would be met with open arms. And people would say things like, we're glad you're here. We missed you. <laughs> Instead of the, you know, pre-rehab people would have their heads down and not say a word and be terrified. And what happens is when you're that scared, and I know this from experience because this is how I was trained. When you're that scared, you are in the amygdala part of your brain where the fight or flight or freeze response Mm -hmm. occurs. You're in survival mode because you sense a threat. And when your nervous system senses a threat, it's going to try and do everything it can to keep you alive. And that pushes you out of your prefrontal cortex where all rational decision-making occurs. And you just keep making mistakes over and over again because you scientifically don't have access to the part of your brain that makes rational decisions. Um, And so overall, it just, there are fewer mistakes. Everybody stays calm and grounded and happy and the food's better. And the, and the service is better and the restaurant's better. So we'd really like to commend you on demonstrating some serious leadership right there. Both Wendy and I teach leadership. We both teach culinary. And one of the things that we're trying to teach our, our young cooks is this, this concept of feedback and criticism and how, how to, to measure it. And what we encourage them to do is to say every day, I appreciate this about you. And we follow that up with, I think you could work on this. So, you know, like really getting away from like this sort of top down, like no, no, um, constructive feedback where it's just like destructive, like really sandwiches in there. And everything you've just said really reinforces some of those things that we're, we're trying to teach, uh, young cooks about, uh, the future, the future in the, in the kitchen. So thank you very much for taking a leadership role in that, Sean. I really appreciate that. Well, thank you. I think one of the best things I learned in, treatment at the meadows was we are all doing the best that we can with the tools that we have. That's all we can do. You can't expect me to do more and you can't expect the other person to do more. That's a simple fact. And at the end of the day, the important thing is discussing that and saying, well, I did my best. Now I know better tomorrow. I will do better. And if you can go to bed and if you can continue that that process way of thinking and you go to bed knowing that that day you did 51% better than you did the other day. And that's all you can do. And that's progress. You're walking forward and that adds up. That's, that's, that's wonderful. You would, you had talked about minimalism. Um, you had connected minimalism to stress reduction 
Um, do you want to talk a little bit about minimalism and how you, you've gone down to this, this minimalist path? And I, sorry, I shouldn't say gone down to, I should say you've gone down this road of minimalism. Yeah. Yeah. It's a goal I've had my whole career and I've known that it's something I've been working for my whole career because, you know, there's a lot of work that goes into creating something extraordinary and creating an amazing experience out of something humble and, and something simple. That's really, really hard. And that's something that I will continue to focus on. And that's just what drives me. You know, I'm driven by this. I, 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 I joke that it's a Jedi mind trick mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and, and <clears throat> it seems kind of cruel sometimes <laughs> because you're doing, you know, you're thinking in this complex way and discovering these new ways to create layers and layers. But when it's sat in front of the guests, it's the simplest looking thing they've ever seen. And I think it's the jolt of surprise when something unassuming is extraordinary. And that's where I think you truly develop a deeper memory uh, of, of that experience and therefore become more um, touched by that experience and hopefully inspired. Um, yeah, it's, it's my, that's my goal. I think it was uh, Woodrow Guthrie, the American um, songwriter, who said, any fool can make something complicated. It takes a genius <laughs> to make it simple. I love that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I actually can see parallels in your explanation there about minimalism, how we, there's so much complexity behind something, and then in front of the guest, it's very, very simple and almost um, – a gut reaction that it's basic, but really your discovery and your journey on seeds and saving them. I mean, the intricacy behind a seed and what mother nature in, implemented inside one is complex, something that we can understand. And then right in front of us is this tiny little, sometimes hardly, <laughs> if, you, if the, if you sneeze, it's gone and it becomes this beautiful, product that we don't even know what it can and will become. And I could see your journey matching with your discovery of seeds as well. That's a wonderful, wonderful way to look at it. Um, Speaking of seeds, then I remember us having a brief conversation before the interview where you were saying that there's going to be a seed bank in your new restaurant, Audrey. And we had talked about maybe, I mean, having a trade or being able to have customers come in and do seed trades. Is that still something that is a possibility? In the South, we have this great tradition of seed swaps, and it's always happened. And to me, it's one of those traditions of my region that I'm going to take on the responsibility of carrying out because I want to, and it's fun, and and I enjoy it, and I think it's really, really important because this is how – before social media, before the internet, even before telephones. This is how communities stayed connected. This is how communities um, lifted each other up. It's these communal activities like a sorghum potluck or the, 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 the hog slaughter or 
any sort of preservation that would occur with apples or, you know, there's these activities that everybody's already doing and they're doing it individually. And when we can get together and combine all those brains and all those souls, that's how communities become stronger and that's how they stay together. And so we've actually designed our parking lot at the restaurant to be able to have um, spaces where we can put tents up and have seed swaps the old-fashioned way, just a farmer with a table and some seeds and uh, home, home gardeners or seed collectors or anyone can just come and, and trade seeds and trade stories and learn and share. And man, that gets me excited just talking about it. The, the the real sense of community in there it's it's unbelievable what you're what you're trying to do. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about this concept that that's new to me. You call it a community diamond. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so the community diamond is now something that I base a lot of my decisions on, and I, and it's a thing that I created to help me understand how to go about all the things that I'd like to accomplish. And it's based on theory from Alfred Adler, um, who was really brilliant and wasn't quite the celebrity that Carl Jung or Freud was because his, his, his theories were so simple. They were so simple that most people not only didn't believe him, but just didn't, pay any attention to and his whole theory is based around contributing to community and that's all the worth we'll ever need but he talks about how there are different units of community and so he talks about the smallest unit being two people the largest unit being the universe and so i started thinking well if I know that I can take better care of people if I'm taking better care of myself. Then I've got to start at the smallest unit of community and to make sure that I'm honestly contributing to that smallest unit before I go to the next band, um, the next layer, the next level of the next unit of community. And it's only until I feel like I have contributed to that and I have room to give that I can go to the next unit. And that's helped me really, really focus and realize what my circle of competence truly is. Like what I'm actually, what my output and my bandwidth is because that's the same with cooking. It's the same with creating a dish. It's the same with writing a menu. It's the same with executing service you have to understand what you're actually capable of doing not what you're capable of doing but what you're capable of doing while staying healthy and happy and that's a lesson that i learned the hard way and that's why i'm taking that and, and i'm taking that into how we make all of our decisions at the restaurant and so we will um have this well, the restaurant will have its own community diamond and it will be on the wall 
and we'll know exactly what those 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 units are and, and what we feel like we're capable of doing. And it's funny when you draw it, it looks like a baseball diamond. I don't even know why or how it came to be. Maybe I just subconsciously love baseball so much. But when I drew it, and then I realized that it looks just like the Wi-Fi bandwidth on your cell phone. <laughs> <laughs> <clears throat> and it has bands like that. And it's, you know, the further out you go, the larger it gets. And that's, I mean, it just, I don't know. It's something that just made a lot of sense to me. And when I've shared it with other people on the team, it's made a lot of sense to them. And I think one of the great things about it is that it displays Mm self-compassion and it allows you to realize that we're only, you know, we're, we're only human beings and not, not, not all of us need to try and save the world um, before we try um, we need to, we need to make sure we're taking of our, care of ourselves first. Very self-reflective and, and very minimalist as well. And it ties back to, to what you're talking about, about well-being and, and such. And it sounds like you're, you're a real active modern historian in everything that you're doing and in, in the journey and the, and the path that you're, that you're on here. Um, do you have any guilty food pleasures? <laughs> so funny you ask that because on this tour, for some reason, well, I, it's not for some reason. I know exactly why. I have always loved peanut M&Ms, and those are always in many bars of um, hotels. And I used to raid the mini bar and drink all the booze. Now I raid the mini bar and then call down for more M&Ms. <laughs> right before the call, someone knocked on the door and said, mini bar, do you need anything? I'm like, peanut M&Ms, please. <laughs> went, I had to wait to call you till they got the peanut M&Ms in. We've got a friend here who's been putting peanut M&Ms in the freeze dryer to see what happens, and they just kind of blow up. <laughs> and it's funny, you should have been at our office today, because apparently um, one of our colleagues left all of her Halloween candy in our office, and the only things left over were the M&Ms, so <laughs> you would have fit in right well. <laughs> I would have been so happy. Um, so tying back up guilty pleasures and food, of course, and you're developing this amazing culture at your restaurants. I would love to actually know what is one of your favorite staff meals? Jeez, man, I've had some amazing, amazing, amazing staff meals uh, over the span of my career. And that is the meal that I become the most nervous about cooking. Um, It's, it's like cooking for your family. You know, I get so nervous cooking for my family and there's your vulnerability right there. Team. What's that? There's your vulnerable, vulnerable, vulnerability. <laughs> yeah. 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 And so what I think is really fun and really important is when people are creating staff meals that they draw from where they're from and they draw from, from their family or their place or their culture and that's what we talk about while we're eating that meal um, as a team. And that's what I want the guests to be doing at the table. And there's no reason we shouldn't be doing that in in the kitchen and, and with, with the, the front of the house team. Um, so I always go towards the food of my grandmother's table and introduce people to some of the, the weird, quirky Appalachian things. Unbelievable. Um, just one last question, Sean, you, you, you had, you touched on teams and you you'd asked your team how much influence um do you allow your teams to have in i mean you've got is it eight restaurants in five cities right now 
I used to have eight restaurants in five cities. Um, I made the decision to leave all those to focus on this one and to take a little bit better care of myself. And also because when I found myself bouncing around from city to city, going into these kitchens after going through this, this new, this new journey that I'm on, I wasn't contributing what I was, what I wanted to contribute to each place. Um, I didn't know everyone's names. I, I couldn't contribute what I knew I should be contributing. And that made me really unhappy. It made me really feel um, a lot of guilt and it made me realize the importance of um, simplifying things. And so now I've created a situation for myself where I'll be able to spend all my time with one team and work on a system that will allow for um, what I call a horizontal relationship between us in regards to creativity. And we're all involved. There is no, um, there is no hierarchy. There's, it's, we're just, it's about listening. It's about listening and sharing and, and thinking. It's amazing. Well, I mean, what you're telling us and all these things that you're practicing, you're setting traditions to our food industry that I think will change the future of food. And we look forward to hearing more and more about your stories, because like you said, without these shared stories, they become lost. And before it's too late, uh, you have made great changes. And I want to thank you and on behalf of all of George Brown students. And we look forward to seeing what everybody gets inspired by just your actions alone. Um, they're incredible. Yeah, it's been Thank great, you. great having you on the show, Sean. We really appreciate all of your insight and 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 all of your thoughts. Thank you. I look forward to coming back on my next book tour. <laughs> I hope it's soon, Sean. Just before you go, do you mind saying, um, "Hi, my name's Sean Brock, and you're listening to the Chef Pod." Hi, my name's Sean Brock, and you're listening to the Chef Pod. <laughs> Thanks so much, man. Hey, listen, again, we really, really appreciate all the time that you've taken here. Oh, likewise, y'all. Thank you so much. And and good luck with your new endeavor, and we can't wait to come down and, and try the new restaurant. Yes, yeah, see you soon. All right. Thank you. Take care. Bye. This episode would not have been possible without the awesome help of Tony Garcia and Owen Banks from the Center for Hospitality and Culinary Arts at George Brown College. And without the sound engineering prowess of Ray Harry Paul from the Center of Business at George Brown College. Thanks so much, everyone. Thank you for the collaboration. My name is Jason Innes and I'm Wendy Ma. And you've been listening to the Chef Pod where we're sowing the seeds for the future of food. Have a great day, everyone.